danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 375 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brookes. And from Laughlin, Nevada, this is Carlos Welch. Uh, this, I, I like these episodes that are multiples of 25. Sort of, I mean, we're obviously <laughs> we're coming up on 400, which is a big milestone, but uh, 375 still feels a little like a, a milestone. Yeah, yeah, I like these as well. Um. What uh, it, this this feels backwards. I think I think you told me you were going to Las Vegas tomorrow. My recollection is usually you were doing Laughlin on the weekends and and Las Vegas during the week when you could get the rooms cheap. Am I misremembering that? Um, no, you're doing you're definitely remembering it correctly. But um, basically, I was able to get um some comped rooms during the week here um and the weekend. So. I basically, I was in Vegas until Friday, and then on Friday, I came down here, and they gave me like a whole week, including Friday and Saturday, so um, I'll be here until next Friday, uh, yeah, which is, okay. and then I'll be in the car, so tomorrow, uh, geez, I said next Friday, but that's literally tomorrow in my mind, <laughs> and uh, so I'll be in Vegas in the car Friday and Saturday, starting tomorrow, and then I will at the Rio um, for actually 11 days. I get I get a weekend at the Rio um, next week as well. So, yeah, kind of a score there. That doesn't happen super often. Less looking at the trash can. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I have a bit of uh, exciting news. Uh, a book... Crap, I have to look up the title of my own book. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're like the GOAT with the titles yeah. we, we made these titles and we can't remember them they're like a mouthful i can't wait to hear this thing <laughs> uh well, the, the, i mean this one uh the reason i can't uh i'm struggling to remember it is that it's in spanish uh juega un poker optimo uh my, i'm sure my pronunciation is a little off there but uh play optimal poker is now available in spanish so i don't know how many people listening to the show would prefer to read the book in spanish but uh if that happens to be you or maybe you know someone uh, who is a spanish speaker who would be interested in juega un poker optimo uh, that is available from uh, uh i said said pokerstars.com <laughs> amazon.com uh, also amazon.mx and some of the other uh uh, Amazon.es, um, so you can uh, get that on Kindle or on um, paper, you know, good old-fashioned paper. Yeah, it, uh, it's been out in Japanese. I have no idea how to pronounce the Japanese <laughs> title. It's been out in, in Japanese for a little while in case uh, that happens to be something you're interested in. Um, there are Korean and French translations in the works as well, which is, it's pretty wild to think of, like, if, if you could go back, I mean, just to tell me that, you know, 20 years ago that I published a poker book at all it would be pretty exciting. But the idea of just like, oh yeah, you'll have published like a book in, in you know, several languages, including like on the other side of the world, like people will be reading your book. It's, it's a, a crazy thing that the internet uh, provides. 
Yeah, yeah, that is pretty awesome. And you know, I, I would say that was only slightly um, harder to pronounce than exploiting small stakes tournaments premium training video. um i have a a bit of um uh life update if you're uh if you're if you're ready for some navel gazing yeah bring it (laughs) so um today is april 14th um on april 10th i got second in a 1k on on bavada for 27k and then on April 12th, I got second in another 1K on Bavada for 22K. Yeah. So that's been, I've had a 50K week, uh, which is um, pretty nice. And um, if you want to throw in all those comp rims. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, um, both of these tournaments and pretty much all the 1Ks I've played recently. Um, I've got into uh, winning satellite tickets, so um, that adds a little bit to the um, the um, bottom line as well. So the satellites are like maybe one sixty or two hundred. Actually, some of them are one hundred nine. Yeah, so anywhere from one hundred nine to two fifteen satellites to a one k to two second places. So yeah. Um, uh, things are going pretty well in the Bavada streets for me. What is it that keeps you from being a closer? <laughs> really good question. Cause I do say uh, on the one hand, I want to say both of those tournaments I lost in both of the last hands, um, Villa made a correct shove. I made a correct call with the best hand and lost, but, uh, I shouldn't even been short at those points. I, I definitely have not been playing my best heads up. And that's actually a question I'd love to find the answer to. <laughs> I mean, part of my point, which I imagine you realize, is you know, people love to spin yeah. these narratives from like a small, they're like, oh, you're second place in two tournaments. Why can't Carlos win heads up? Like, yeah. variance in poker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, uh, Although that extra money is nice, uh, it sucks a lot less to get heads up in a Bavada tournament than it does in a bracelet event. So I close when it counted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of bracelets, our guest today, Cami, uh, better known as Dr. Kamikaze in the poker world, has uh, three of them, not from the WSOP, but from WCOOP and SCOOP. Uh, They are a mixed game specialist, uh, so we get to do a lot of mixed game talk in this episode, which uh, I certainly enjoyed. I I think you're you're up for some mixed game talk, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's definitely not my favorite thing to do. I'll put it this way. I enjoy hearing experts talk about mixed games. So I like, you know, sitting on the side and kind of like listening and learning, but I don't like trying to figure that stuff out myself because I'm not <laughs> equipped <laughs> to uh, do so. But the more I listen, uh, the better equipped I get. Yeah. So Cammy is uh, a former professional poker player. I believe they're still playing. I mean, it sounds like they're still getting a lot of their, their income from playing poker, uh, but they also are a co-founder of the Toronto Queer Film Festival and a filmmaker themselves. Um, so we talked some towards the end of the episode about 
uh, about you know their their the film festival and and their work in film. Um, but the the you know the first hour of the episode is is very uh, poker focused and, and in particular very poker strategy focused. Um, it is it, it's centered on on mixed games. We do talk some about like lessons that you can carry from mixed games into no limit and vice versa. You know they do play a lot of no limit uh, just you know, kind of by necessity. That is where a lot of the, uh, yeah. the poker is, is happening. So it's not like they don't know how to play no limit, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy that it's it's kind of hard to find people who really know what they're talking about when it comes to mixed games. So I thought this was uh, a great opportunity, and I thought they did a really nice job of explaining some interesting and really like tournament specific uh, mixed game concepts, which was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Nate Nate's presence was definitely uh, in the room for this one. Yeah. I, I felt it felt like a throwback episode for sure. <laughs> Uh, so that is coming up, of course, if you, uh, but, but that also means because it is going to be a strategy heavy interview, uh, we're not doing a separate strategy segment here. If you do miss uh, the strategy segment, you can um, go listen to one right now on Thinking Poker Daily if it's a weekday. Um, so you could every day of the week, uh, you could get a strategy segment from us by signing up at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. Um, and you know, we do sometimes discuss even non-hold'em hands there or do our best to, to do so. But uh, yeah, every day of the week, poker strategy segment from Carlos and me at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily also helps us support this regular show. So I uh, definitely appreciate people checking that out. And uh, you know, Play Optimal Poker available in English or Spanish from uh, amazon.com or the ebook available in English from Nickcast. Dot com, which is also where you can get all of our uh, strategy podcasts and strategy videos and other things that uh, Carlos and I have done together or you know, further back, Nate and I have done together. Anything else you want to tell people before we go talk to Cammy? Yeah, if you're not interested in mix and mixed games, definitely um, tune in for the end of the conversation. Uh, we definitely had some um, passionate topics that um, – we um, discussed there, and if nothing else, I think that would be um, um, interesting for a lot of people. Yeah, it was cool of Cammy to stick around for as long as they did to um, to talk. Yeah, we kind of got to yeah. the end. You know, we we did like a full hour just like talking poker strategy, and I was like, oh, we didn't even get to the, like the, the film stuff that I was also pretty interested in. And then they ended up sticking around for like an extra half hour and talking about that, which was awesome. Um, so yeah, 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 I really enjoyed it. Well, hopefully, uh, you all will as well. Uh, our interview with Kami, Dr. Kamikaze. Well, uh, hello, Kami. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so, you know, we usually start these things, if you want to just kind of give us a background of, like, your uh, your poker journey, you know, like, how, when did you start playing poker, how did you get interested in it? Uh, I know you, I, I at least think of you as, as primarily a mixed game player now, um, so I'd be curious to hear, you know, how, how you settled on those, or, you know, why that became the, uh, the thing that you were ultimately interested in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, although, to be honest, um, I probably play about half my volume in No Limit Hold'em these days. Um, that, that's why because I, I that's what that it's available. I but <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know. Like even for people I think of as mixed game players, I think it's fairly difficult to be like a, exclusively a mixed game player. 
Um, it's it's also where I'm doing all of my studies because that's what's available. Mm. Um, so I also play largely to practice what I'm studying. Um, but I mean, to be honest, if there were sufficient mixed games pl- being offered r- running at my stakes, um, I would play very little. Uh, no limit hold'em. I'd still play some, but I probably play a lot less but especially in the last um, several years um, mixed games have really dried up at the mid stakes uh, which doesn't leave me a lot of options so most of my volume these days is in 08 and no limit hold'em but stars did just add a really nice mixed game uh, really nice eight game uh, at the $5,800 buy-in that I'm playing a lot now and that's why I'm really I'm really loving getting to play the mixed games a lot more and does that, uh, does that I, count as mid stakes? That sounds like fairly high stakes to me. Uh, I, you know, honestly, <laughs> I don't know what people are considering mid stakes. I guess I'm thinking about high stakes as like two fifteens and above. Um, you know, oh, oh, when, when you said fifty one hundred, I thought you meant like the the stakes. You know, like it was like a, a limit game with stakes of fifty one hundred. No, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I would definitely consider that. Okay. High no, I'm talking, <laughs> about ter- I'm talking about tournaments. Yawn, two thousand dollar pots, just small potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, I did used to play high stakes mixed games um, when I was a professional, but um, I, I don't anymore. Um, I've got come down on levels, but. Yeah, um, I got into poker actually around 20 years ago because I was invited to a butch poker night that was just like, bring your coin jar, you know, like five cent, ten cent, no limit hold'em. We had no idea what we were doing or probably even that we were playing no limit hold'em, but um, uh, that was sort of my first experience. And, you know, I think I won like five or ten dollars my first time playing and I was super excited. And I was just hooked uh, from the start. And it wasn't, I, so I, I, I was playing home games with, uh, like sort of queer home games with friends for a while, but that wasn't enough action for me. So I started going to Lucky Chances. And um, I know you've played there a lot too. Um, this is when I was living in San Francisco. And the, the first game I played a lot was Limit Hold'em back in the early 2000s. There was, I think there was some No Limit at that time, but it wasn't running a lot. Like, most of the tables were Limit Hold'em. And then they would also have one or two tables of, like, 4-8 uh, Limit Omaha 8 or better. And I started with Hold'em, but, one, I, but I saw the 08 game, and I was like, what's that? And I just went and sat down, and I was in love from 08 from the start that was that's always been my favorite game i played as much of it as i could both live cash and then later tournaments online and um during this period i was finishing my phd and so i was just playing for fun um but after i finished my phd and i realized that an academic career wasn't for me i was on unemployment for a while and so i got some books and i started studying the mixed games at that time, Full Tilt was offering a wide range of $24 or $26 buy-in um, mixed game tournaments, Horse, 08, um, all the mixed games. And they were these great, you know, like $24 buy-in, 4K tournaments. Um, and I just started completely crushing them. And I was involved in part-time poker at the time and was, and was getting some stakes, and I was just crushing the low limit stakes and within a year I was getting backed for all the high buy-ins at WCOOP and 
the first year I played W Coop, I wound up finishing ninth overall. This was in 2009 on the W Coop leaderboard. Mm-hmm. Playing, I played all of the mixed games events and none of the Hold'em events, or maybe I played one or two Hold'em events. But I did so well in all the mix. I think I made like five final tables or something that year. I took second in the wow. 300 PLO8. Um, and I just had like an outrageous series. And that sort of set the stage for a pretty wild few years where I was playing a lot of the, the high stakes mixed game tournaments. But then Black Friday happened and I developed a gambling problem and everything just kind of crashed in 20. 2011 to 2013 and uh, so I actually took a break from poker for a while did gambling and other treatments really focused on my health and my mental health and about 2019 when uh, poker go started streaming the WSOP mixed game finals finally uh, final tables I was watching them and seeing people I'd played with and even coached, you know, at the 10K horse final table and was watching them play. And I was like, you know, I can like I was and I just still felt like right in it. Like I knew what to do and what I was predicting what they would do every hand. I was calling out the moves before they did them. And I was just like, why am I not playing poker anymore? <laughs> and so then I came back into it. But everything had changed, you know, with solvers and everything. Um, and I think when I started back up playing, I was just not a winning player. And I uh, realized that the game had sort of passed me by, and if I wanted to keep playing, I was going to have to really study. And so I just dove in, and I've been probably studying 20 to 40 hours a week since. <laughs> and loving every minute of it. I've become a total geek. I, you know, back in the day, I was a total action junkie. Um, and just wanted to play as much as possible. And now what I really love the most is is studying and teaching and talking about poker. So I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, you've contributed a lot. I don't know, you know hands for um, like Thinking Poker Daily. And, and I think you've had some good comments on the, the times that we've had like non-Hold'em uh, hands on the show. You know, I don't think either of us feel... Um, especially qualified. I mean, I feel like I have a good enough understanding of poker theory to kind of talk about like the, the broad outlines of, uh, of of those hands, but I can remember a, a few instances where you were able to fill in some um, some pretty valuable details in, in the comment section of like uh, you know things things that were missing from from our analysis. I remember I think there was a five card PLO eight hand that I remember you having some pretty good uh, commentary on. Yeah, that was that was a fantastic episode. I I think that was one of Nate's last episodes. Um, yeah, he he always had great things to say about 08. I really appreciated his viewpoint. Um, and uh, feel free to tag me in if anybody sends in some 08 mixed game questions. <laughs> Will I, do. Will do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a fantastic episode. I was really into that. So does um, coming back into poker? I mean, you mentioned having had a, a problem with gambling. Is poker not? Like, do you kind of think of poker as being in a different category from from that? Like, do you feel like you have a different relationship with poker than with other gambling games? I do. I, I mean, I've always understood gambling to be making negative EV bets, and um, and quite frankly, when I was gambling, I knew I was making. I knew exactly what the odds are were of every single bet I was making. I, I mean, maybe there, there are lots of gamblers who don't probably, but um, I did. And uh, I did it anyway, and it was a really it was a self destruction destructive um, pattern. And um, 
but I always during that time what was happening was is I was winning all the money at poker and then losing it in the pits um, uh, you know except for that brief period when I came back um, I think I've always been a, a winning poker player and and I think I understand well enough um, you know how to play and and I do I think a lot like a lot of poker players I view poker more akin to chess as a skill game than it's not I mean obviously you can gamble at poker um, but I also made a promise to myself when I came back that I had to find a better way to relate to poker and that if I couldn't do it in a way that wasn't destructive to my health and mental health and if I felt like I was just gambling at it then that I was going to have to quit mm. Um, but I had, it's been, it's, it's not been easy and it's something that I'm actually still very much actively working on, but, um, yeah, I have developed a significantly different and better relationship to the game and that's why I'm still here. Yeah. That strikes me as a complicated thing because I think you know, what you said is right. Like it is certainly possible to have that kind of like, um, I mean, to be making like knowingly making negative EV bets at, at poker and having that sort of like self-destructive relationship to poker as it is to, to any other um, gambling game. And I mean, imagine we've, we've all seen that uh, over the course of our time in the game, but it, that doesn't, you know, I, so I think like from the outside, if, if you think of poker like only as a gambling game, or, you know, like I think a lot of the, like to the extent that people have negative stereotypes about it, there's sort of the assumption that that's the only thing that it is. But then I think there's also a defensiveness in the poker community of saying like, oh no, no, it's not that. Um, and, you know, I think the, the truth is like, there's there's some mix of, you know, it is possible to have that sort of bad relationship with, um, or negative relationship with, with poker. And I think a lot of poker players sort of don't um, just sort of reject that out of hand. Uh, I mean, it absolutely is for sure, and it's something that I was really concerned about and that I monitored, and I continue to monitor very carefully. And, I mean, I have a rule. If I'm not enjoying playing, if it's interfering with my life, if I'm spending money that I can't afford to lose, et cetera, then I, then I have to either take a break or if it continues, then I have to quit. But I've, but I've actually not been doing that. And, I, like, I, I mean, I've really reorganized my life very differently, you know. I think part of the stressor too back in the day was I was playing poker professionally. That was where all of my income came from. And now I have a really wonderful day job and have some financial security, um, more financial security than I've ever had in my life. And that's been really crucial. And so I'm very adamant that my job comes first, my relationships come first, my life comes first. I still spend a lot of time on poker and I love every minute, but it's not what comes first. And as long as I'm approaching it that way, I feel very comfortable with what I'm doing. That sounds like Carlos uh, happiness EV. Absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Like, you know, like I, you know, I'm, I'm also autistic. I'm neurodivergent. I'm not, I'm not good at doing things that I'm not enjoying. And so um, I like everything I do is for passion. And if I'm not passionate about something, it's just not worth my time. And 20 years later, I'm just still super passionate about poker. It's just one of my favorite things to study and think about and do and talk about. And um, as long as that's true, I'm, I'm going to stick around. Well, you mentioned that your, your study now focuses a lot on No Limit, um, I guess more out of necessity than <laughs> that, that would necessarily be your number one passion within poker. But you know, specifically, like, what, what does your No Limit study look like? You know, when you say you're, you're studying, what form does that take? So um, for the last several years, I've been uh, going through, I've, I've, I've signed up for lots of the different poker training sites. Um, I started off with... Uh, 
uh, Tournament Pokerage, which I really loved, loved your videos and um, and Alex Fitzgerald's in particular. Um, I also did a stint at PokerCoaching.com, um, uh, but once I felt ready to sort of move to another level with my studies, I signed up with BBZ Poker, which is where I've been for the last year. Um, I think they have a really great um, seminar uh, package that they do, which is they do live seminars. Um, it's about seven or eight uh, a week, one, one plus hours. Um, and working with some of the best players in poker and I think best coaches and it's it's very high level studies and it it I was floundering for a really long time but I'm starting to feel like I'm starting to get into the groove and yeah I've just really loved it it's just you know I've always believed that studying all the games helps you learn more and be a better player in all the other games as well and that's and since the best coaching is available in Element Hold'em that's that's what I'm doing. Um, I, it's, I also do like No Limit Hold'em. I don't want, don't want to sound like I don't. Um, it's just, maybe, you know, I just get bored. I like to play everything. So, like, I don't like to focus entirely on No Limit Hold'em. But in that respect, that's why... I, so I study not only to learn No Limit Hold'em, and I do think I've improved vastly in my No Limit Hold'em game, but I also study to... And when I'm studying with them and when I'm listening, when I'm learning things, I'm taking what I'm learning and thinking about how I can apply it to other games, particularly No Limit 08, but not only No Limit 08. Um, things like bet sizing, you know, reading boards and thinking about, you know, thinking about board and range interactivity to figure out when you see bet, when you don't, when you bluff, when you don't, um, uh, who has range and nut advantage, like, all these things that you talk about in your book and that lots of people coach um, have just dramatically improved my approach to OA in particular. And that, that has just been really exciting to me. But in addition to the seminars, um, I work with solvers. I have Munker and I've been experimenting with um, Omaha ranges in particular over the last few years, uh, uh, last year since I've had it a lot. And that's really um, also changed. You know, I've learned a lot from that. Um, right now, I'm actually running some limit limit hold'em ICM sims for my eight game boot camp, and uh, that's just been absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, yeah, just I'm just you know like I'm just I'm running like I, I would kill to be able to pay somebody else to to teach me all this stuff. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is is that nobody is doing this, um, and so I just decided a while ago that I was going to just do my own studies and figure out my own approaches and share them with people and hopefully build a community where we can grow together to be able to study this since none of the none of the big crushers in the mixed games are offering any coaching or sharing any of this knowledge. Uh, are there solvers available for all the mixed games you play? Um, sort of. Not all of them. Um, Munker, Munker does, you know, all versions of... of Hold'em and Omaha, including Hilo. Um, there is like a there is like a free program called Trotulator um, that you can use for some of the other games. Um, uh, and there are some solvers that like work with the stud games and stuff like that. But they're it, like what's available is nothing remotely compared to what's available for Omaha and and Nolan Hold'em in particular. Um, so it does it does present. Uh, and especially for tournaments, right? Like how you fa 
like, yeah. <laughs> like there's no ICM sims for deuce to seven and triple draw. <laughs> like, or if they are, they they aren't shared, right? They're somebody developed them privately and they're not <laughs> selling them. Um, uh, so that's sort of the struggle with mixing. But that's also that's also what's exciting about the mixed games, like. Part of what part of what gets kind of boring for me about No Limit Hold'em is that there's so much information out there, and now it becomes a game of who's studied the most. And um, with mixed games, the fact that there isn't all this information available and people aren't studying in that way leaves a lot of room for creativity, uh, exploits, um, and you know, just creative thinking about the game that I feel like gets stamped out a lot in No Limit Hold'em discussions. Of all the things people have said on the show over the years, one of the ones that sticks with me the most was from an interview with uh, Barney Boatman, where he talked about the first time that he saw a salver, and just like his horror. He was like, what have you done to our beautiful game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as someone who's been playing for a long time, it's really changed a lot, you know, like, um, a lot of, I, you know, I think, you know, early on, my success in poker was a lot of just, like, pure aggression and that just worked you know and especially in hold'em now that's um that's not gonna i mean aggression is obviously good still good but uh but the way that i played before is is you just can't do that anymore how um with with regard to the mixed games i kind of get the sense that you're maybe like in particular a mixed game tournament specialist or the not that you're a specialist but i mean that that is maybe your your the area where you've had the most uh success is that accurate yeah um i'm i i mean i do play a little bit of cash but i'd say 99 percent of what i play is tournaments okay. uh, i i love i love tournaments to be quite frank i i am all about like I'm like, give me the most complicated situation you can possibly contrive, and I, that's where I want to be. And so, uh, mixed game tournament poker, I, I don't know if it gets more complicated. <laughs> Especially when you're talking about eight game or horse uh, mixes. Um, and so, I just, love the ch- I just love the challenge of overwhelming information and uh, possibilities. And, and try, and I mean, we all know that poker is not about being the best player in the world, although a lot of people, I think, have that fantasy that, like, I'm going to be the best player in the world. But, like, po- you don't have to be the best player in the world to be a great poker player. You just have to be better than the people that you're playing with, or you just have to edge, have an edge in the games that you're playing. And there's just significantly greater edges in the mixed game because of the lack of training and knowledge and information available combined with the complications of turn like the general complications of tournament uh, structure that's also something i really get from the no limit hold'em studies right like a lot of the work that's done in no limit hold'em is on tournament structure and that's just applicable to every game Uh, i've also been studying pkos a lot and that's becoming a really popular thing in fact the eight game the eight game tournaments that they're offering on stars now are pkos and uh, like the, I think the trend is going to be almost this. You know, the trend is like going almost exclusively to PKOs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been I've been studying that a lot and and love that and because it just also adds like a whole other layer of <laughs> total complication. <laughs> and um, and for me, it's not that I feel like I have to get everything right, but like the more like 
I do think I have an edge in being able to add up more information than others and, and in terms of all of these different factors. And that's where I thrive and get really excited. I love the challenge of it. Yeah, I feel like something we've often seen in these mixed games, and my, my view on this may be a few years outdated, but um, there was sort of like cash games, but just because there weren't that many mixed game tournaments, especially at higher stakes, like the people winning the you know the 10K stud or whatever were mostly like stud cash game players who just like understood the game well enough to adapt to a tournament situation. They weren't necessarily like stud tournament specialists or people who had really studied like stud tournament strategy specifically. They maybe knew tournament strategy from No Limit and they knew stud strategy from stud cash games and then they were just good enough poker players to to mash those things up. Um, is there anything you can say specifically about how does the, the strategy in, in some of the other like non-hold'em games, um, you know, how does that change when, when you're playing a tournament or what are some of the tournament specific considerations that might be different from, or that you, maybe you wouldn't anticipate as just being a, a No Limit tournament player? Um, are you talking about like the difference between no limit and mixed game tournaments or cash mixed games and cash mixed games? The latter. Okay, yeah. Um, so the biggest adjustment that I think is, is important to make between cash mixed gameplay and tournament is that in cash, because you can keep rebuying, you just you just push all all edges, right? So. Um, so like there's a lot of four betting and capping like in Raz Cash, for example, on Third Street. Whereas um uh I think stack depth in a tournament matters a lot whether you want to do that. And in fact, um at various stages of the tournament, depending on my stack size, I'm gonna one hundred percent flat have a flat in Raz versus um three betting or four and especially four betting, just because um it's really important in mixed games to think about variance and think about how the different games play. And in a game like Raz, which is a drawing game, um, where you where you really have to make a hand most of the time, uh, like almost all the time, to win the pot, uh, putting the the edges on Third Street between say Ace Deuce Three and Five Six Seven or Five Six Eight are just not astronomical. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, you have an edge and that's important, but it's not one that's really worth pushing, in my opinion, it, especially when, when ICM is a factor and you're short stacked. Uh, chip, pre chip preservation is extremely important, and my theory is that actually short stacks in mixed game tournaments are much more valuable than in no limit hold'em tournaments, and that uh, minimizing variance, especially on early street pay, play, when, when in later streets you will have um, what, where you will know for a fact that you either have the hand locked up or a massive advantage. Uh, it really, to my mind, this is my strategy for mixed games, is to um, minimize variance on earlier high variance streets and then put, you know, then look to, to either fold early or put the money in as, as the hand improves. What is it that makes the the short stack especially valuable in a in a mixed game tournament? Um, so first of all, stack sizes in a mixed game tournament deep are are going to be across the board smaller. Um, in or, like it's just sort of the way that tournament func functions because um, people don't really start busting until they get short stacked, right? So um, you don't have usually deep in a mixed game tournament um, a lot or maybe any big stacks. And um, 
and there's always and like deep in a tournament you're always going to have a lot of players that are basically one hand or two hands away from busting and the fact of the matter is is that there are spots where there are spots and it i mean it depends on the game obviously but there are spots where you have um a huge amount of equity and are likely to not bust and there are spots where you need to be really careful because uh, you can easily brick and you'll be out um so this is where i think the role of the split pot games in in the mixes Mm -hmm. are really crucial because you're just statistically significantly less likely to bust in a split pot game um, you're also less likely to scoop it, but you're much less likely to bust because you're going to get, if you're playing properly, you're going to get at least half the pot a lot of the time. So playing more aggressively in the mixed, in the, in the split bot games versus the ones um, where you can, where you can brick and brick really quickly, like Raz or Triple Draw. Um, triple Draw actually plays the biggest out of all the games, and so that's one to really be careful with. Um, also, the fact of the matter is, is that if you know, even if you have one big blind, if you win a hand and you're patient, and then you wait for a good spot, like you're just you just have a much better chance of doubling up. The doubling up matters more, and also because even when you have like four big blinds, for example, say in limit hold'em, and you're in the big blind and it's raised to you, that's um, one bet. You can call one bet, see what develops, and fold. And then you still have chips for another hand, and and because you can realize your equity more, and because you, and because the, because nobody can shove on you when you're a short stack. This is also, a, I mean, except in except in no limit hold'em in eight game, <laughs> um, you just get to realize your equity a lot more, all the time. And so pushing thin edges or um, or thinking, oh my god, I'm four big blinds under the gun. I need to just get it in with whatever. Uh, it's is that makes more sense in no limit hold'em, but it doesn't make sense actually in in limit, um, where you have so many more chances to realize equity if you stay in the game. Does it follow from that then that when you are playing like an eight game, the knowledge of what game is coming up next might influence some of your short stack? decisions of like oh we're, you know, we're going to be playing PLO8 next so that's a split pot game I know I'm going to have low variance in that game so I'm going to be a little bit more cautious in, in the game before that versus if uh, you know, triple draw is coming up next you're a little more likely to, to take a risk in the current game uh, yeah uh, um, PLO8 is not in the game mix though it's oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, it's PLO high um, <laughs> so yeah absolutely um, you know like there's there's so many factors to consider like um, like blinds versus antes. Um, your stack is going to dwindle less in this in the ante games than the the, the blind games. Um, TLO and No Limit Hold'em also have significantly lower blinds than Triple Draw, so um, like you can and and No Limit Hold'em in an eight game doesn't play with an ante, right? So that. That's also probably a mistake that a lot of No Limit Hold'em players who come into eight game and then they're like, oh, it's Hold'em, this is my game. But they don't actually realize that their ranges should shift significantly because there's no ante. Um, but it also means that you, can, that you should and can play tighter and wait for better spots. Um, but I might take a spot in No Limit Hold'em, for example, you know, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a, big, with a good pair, like nines plus or like whatever, all day long in No Limit Hold'em because... Of, because um, that's a made hand, right? And when I get to Omaha, uh, 
which does have some sort of main hands, but it's less, you know, for it less so than Hold'em, and then definitely Triple Draw, where um, you you need to hit your hand in order to survive. Most likely, I might gamble more in No Limit Hold, or not gamble more, but I'm going to push that edge more in No Limit Hold'em than I am, and I'm going to play a lot tighter in Omaha or uh, Triple Draw, for example, or even you know. Limit limit Hold'em also you have that advantage because um, again like Hold'em 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 has more has, the the made hands pre and Hold'em hold up more than in other games in terms of your ec- overall equity, um, but I'll also still play pretty tight because I know Omaha Eight or Better is coming after Limit Hold'em, and uh, and not only is that my best game it's also the split pot game so I usually try to. Uh, I usually play my strategy, especially given my skill set, whenever. And this is and this is where I think eight game strategy gets really interesting because I think I think you need to I think every player should cultivate their own eight game strategy based on their own skill sets and their like and like what games they're best at. You should always push harder in the games that you're best at, right? Um, and that's going to be different for everybody. Um, but there are some structural advantages, like with the split cock games. And since split cock games happen to be my specialty. Um, I I do do a lot of work and really think carefully about whether or not I want to play a hand or preserve my stack for the split pot round that's going to be coming up soon, where I know um, where I know I can push edges more. That all makes sense to me, but there, there's a part of me that rebels because I'm so used to hearing people in a bad way make the argument of like, well, this is just my style, how I play No Limit Hold'em. You have to find your own style, and like, even that is not entirely wrong. I just feel like it's often made in a kind of like bad and lazy way. And so, like, there's a part of me when you said like, you know, find your own strategy for, and I think it's a totally different thing that you're talking about. But just like, there's a little part of me like twitched when you said like, find your own yeah, it, uh, it game strategy. <laughs> I, I'm not talking about finding your own no limit hold'em strategy. In fact, when I'm t- when I was talking about no limit hold'em, I'm, I'm talking about like I was talking about how like you really do have to adapt strategy like GTO wise and in terms of ranges like anti versus no anti no limit hold'em are completely different beasts. Mm-hmm. Like I've 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 been running the ranges for my eight game seminar um, and I'm, I'm gonna be sharing them with the students there, and uh, they're just significantly tighter with no anti than with anti. Um, also be also because stars is offering a lot of pko tournaments with different anti-sizes i've been running a lot of different sims with different anti-sizes and the anti-size or whether or not you have one at all is just astronomically important so you can have your own style and be like well this is how i play no hold them but if you're not adjusting to that factor like are you really playing well <laughs> but what i'm talking about like i mean you, you you said this what i'm talking about is completely different which is in terms of thinking about the tournament overall and where your where your edges are going to be and what the best strategy is going to be for you is is, is is a different factor i think and 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 i think you do need to consider the structure of the games um in considering it too that that has nothing to do with your skill level at all. but then but then you just you mix it all together right and that's um uh, and for me, for sure, given that I'm an 08 specialist, like that's I'm I am orienting a lot of you know I'm not orienting my entire strategy around it, but that's a significant that is a significant uh, part of the strategy for me. There are many reasons why I love the the big blind ante, but I do miss the days when the um, 
you know, tournaments just have different anti-sizes at different levels. Or just like you're playing, uh, you know, 500, 1,000 with, with a 100 big blind ante, and then you're playing 300, 600 with a, with a $200 ante, or yeah, $100 ante, <laughs> And it's like, you know, the, the, as a fraction of the big blind, you're going from like 20% to 33%. And I mean, when I would talk about this with, with people, just, you know, I was coaching people or whatever, and I would mention like a big ante level versus a small ante level, it just blew people's minds. Like no one was thinking, I mean, even professional no. players, I mean, no one was thinking about changing their ranges based on anti-size yeah i mean stars is now offering some hyper pkos with 25 percent antis when their usual is 12.5 or sometimes they're doing 10 now uh so like paying attention to the structure and understanding how your ranges change in those situations is astronomical like it like a 25 percent anti pko tournament like your ranges are just so different from what you know a standard normal 12.5 no limit hold'em no pko tournament like you have to be thinking about all these things with all the games and that's what i find really exciting is is figuring out these nuances and how to adjust even if even if not exactly like i mean obviously like i mean part of being a generalist the problem is that like can I memorize all these ranges and like all that? No, no not in the slightest. But for me, so I rely very heavily on heuristics and and just sort of just you know just general theorizing about what you should do in the situations. And that's what's that's where the creativity and that's what's exciting for me is is like trying trying to measure like what factors are most important and what I need to consider and how each one um, needs to adjust your ranges and how you play. And um, that's just super exciting for me. I think that that was the other thing that that uh, tweaked me a little bit with the, um, the you know, develop your own strategy. There's a part of me that kind of thinks, well, but there is a theoretically right answer to this. Like, if everyone were equally good at all the games, there there would still be some element of you know you you want to preserve your stack for this game or take more chances in, in that game. But I think part of the point here is we're we're very far away from that point where like everyone is equally good. And, like maybe are never going to reach that point. Like realistically, it's not ever really going to be the case that everyone is equally good at, at all games. And so I think this will be. Um, an, an intrinsic skill in, in any kind of mixed game format is understanding that that uh, differential or like where your particular uh, edge lies. I mean, people are not good at most of the games, and <laughs> and the fact of the matter is too when you say that like we have tools that can sort of say well like I just think you're wrong here like based on these this information and these tools or whatever, and we just don't have those for mixed games. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're probably right. There is a right answer, but how do we? It's <laughs> 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 like <laughs> there's literally nowhere to go and find the answer. So it's you know we just have to think it through as best we can and try and and try and figure it out. Um, but I mean, I do agree with you, and I try to I try to be systematic in thinking about how I approach things to and have justifications. But I'm very well aware at any stage that like some tool can come out at some point and prove me completely wrong, and I welcome that. I want to learn. <laughs> I guess I, I hear rumors that uh, I hear it called like the dream machine or something that that you know there are some high stakes players who have kind of privately commissioned software engineers to create uh, solvers for various mixed games for them. Uh, I mean, I, I don't understand that much about uh, how these things work. It doesn't seem to me it would be that big of a leap to, like, if you already know how to build a solver for no limit, um, it doesn't seem to me that it would be that much of a stretch to then, you know, have it use the same uh, technique of counterfactual regret uh, on a different game. Like, that doesn't seem to me that's something that would require yeah. a, that big of a change. 
I mean, I I don't know like I don't know any like I'm not in contact with any of the high stakes players. So, but I would guess that they're doing that. I would if I had the resources. Um, yeah, I mean, I should say they're they're almost certainly doing that. And my question is more like. <laughs> Why and this is not a question for you or something. I expect you to have insight into, but um, it's like why doesn't that exist as a consumer-facing product? Maybe there's not enough of a market for it. Uh, I think there's two major factors. Um, one is that um, the people who are running most of the training sites um, don't care about mixed games and don't themselves and then have a bias to thinking that there isn't a market um they're probably and 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 maybe they're just making and and probably in terms of volume like from their perspective there just isn't a market because the market for mixed games is always going to be significantly smaller than for no limit hold'em um although i think you know some of the sites have done very well with plo but like they're just sort of like well but beyond that like it's just not worth our time and money um, so there's a lack of interest. There's a, there, like a lot of them are not even playing any of the mixed games. They just don't care at all and don't see any point in it. Um, but I think the other factor is that um, the people who are crushing the games and the people who are passionate about it and who might be developing these tools don't want to share their, their tools and their knowledge because they think it gives them a huge edge in the game and they want to keep that for themselves. Mm. And I... That's just that's just not a philosophy that I condone or agree with. I think it's, I think that's probably a large contributing factor to the death of the games. Um, the people who have succeeded uh, have all the resources and are and are, like they've de- they've developed such a wide edge between themselves and the rest of the player pool. Who like I mean, especially when I register for low stakes, um, you know, in the series for the low stakes mixed games. I mean, there's. I mean, five to ten percent of the field doesn't even know what the rules are to half the games. Um, they're playing. They're playing five cards draw high in deuce to seven triple uh, low. Um, they're playing stud high in raz. Uh, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. Um, and uh, and then and then like basically like for tournaments, there's like there's you know. $11, maybe $20 and under tournaments, and then, like, during the series, there's, you know, 1Ks and above. Um, the, and there's just, like, for tournaments, there's just, like, sort of nothing in between. There's no there's no way for a community to grow. There's no, no way for a player to uh, ladder up. Um, and I think that that's in large part to the fact that nobody wants to teach mixed games, and nobody wants to share information, and, um, and people just sort of want to hoard their knowledge and their edge. And that's um, that's just completely counter to how I want to live my life and how I approach the game and how I approach anything. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a trained teacher. I, you know, I taught for 15 years. Um, I've studied with some of the best minds in poker and not in poker in the world. And one thing I've noticed that all of the truly great minds have in common is that they're not precious about their knowledge. They're not scared to share it. Because they know, one, that there's a huge difference between telling people something and them internalizing and being able to implement it or fully understanding it. They also understand that the breadth of their knowledge is is the asset and not like the specific things that they tell people. And they also know that once you become an expert at something, once you really are one of the best in the world, 
the only way to improve and stay stay with that edge and keep learning yourself and growing yourself if that's what you want to do and i think that for a lot of people like maybe that's not their biggest concern they just want to win all the money i've never been motivated by money in that way i just can't i can't operate that way um but you know especially outside of poker the people that i've interacted with like they but but even within poker the coaches that i've worked with who are really like at like the top of the game right now in poker um they're they're all people who i who really seem to implicitly understand that they that the way that they're growing as players is not only by having peer groups that they study with but by cre- but, but 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 by doing what they need to do to create those peer groups which is sharing knowledge and teaching people and the fact of the matter is is that when you're truly an expert when you're truly one of the best minds at something you don't need to be afraid of what other people are of other you don't you just don't need to be afraid of other people if you really are that good, if you really are that smart, if you really do think that well, you are only going to grow and improve more by sharing your knowledge and teaching. And the idea that by doing that, that like others are going to surpass you, I mean, they might, but like that would also be kind of exciting for me, in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I really think that once you, once you reach a sort of expert level, the best way to continue to learn and grow yourself is to teach. I think uh, Dale Brunson has said you know, he got flack 50 years ago for publishing Super System. People are like, "Why are you giving away all the secrets?" And you know, he's he's still doing okay. Exactly, and but I mean, also like, you know, people don't people don't have fun when they don't know what they're doing. I think I think part of the poker revolution now, and part of part of why people are so excited is not that they're not that there are these tools that they're winning more money or like you know whatever. Um, I mean, which they probably are, but I think. It just also makes the game more interesting for people because they can study it and they can learn these things and they have some ways to objectively measure whether or not their thinking makes sense or not. And like this for me is why I'm loving poker now even so much more than I did, I feel like, back in the day. This, this ability to really gr- think like I'm just thinking about poker at such a higher level and to me there's nothing more ex- exciting about that and I want to keep growing like i want to keep being able to do that better and especially in mixed games where i can't just go out and buy coaching from geniuses who have already figured all this stuff out um i don't believe that there's any way for me to learn or grow besides teaching and sharing what i know building people up so that they can be my peers and then we can grow together from there yeah i mean that's certainly been my philosophy and even in the realm of no limit you know i feel like these arguments don't get made as much but in the earlier days of the training site you know card runners and that sort of thing um there was a lot of complaint of you know you're gonna like ruin the games or something and i mean i guess a that has not happened <laughs> empirically uh but you know that, that always made sense to me at the time also it was like what well, you you know people need to especially if you want people playing higher stakes um they need to get better. Need to be, right? I mean, you, you need, they need to, to be able to win sometimes. Yeah. Nobody's going to play you if they never win. <laughs> so what advantage does it be to, you know, if the gap between your skill level and everyone else is so huge that you just win all the time, who's going to want to play you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want, ha, have you played much uh, dealer's choice, you know, where, where you get to choose r- rather than following a, a set rotation? You know, like p- part of the strategy is choosing which game you're going to play. 
I've never played a dealer's choice tournament. I would love to do that. That would be really fun. And I love watching the dealer's choice tournament when they when they bother to stream it. Because <laughs> uh, I think that's just totally fascinating. Um, and like I was I was watching as much as I could last year. They didn't exact they, they they had a bad stream last year, but I watched as much as I could anyway. And it was pretty fascinating to see that what happened, which was that you know most people were picking. I think it was like ace to five low ball or um, I'm forgetting which games were the ones that they chose. The, like they were choosing the most obscure games, it seemed like for the most part. Um, and I just found that really fascinating. The like, and and I think that would be really interesting. That sort of thinking about like your own skill edge versus like the, whether or not p- other people know how to play what games and and the, the strategy behind what game you would choose would be apps. I, I would just love to play some dealer's choice, but I don't know when I'll ever get a chance. <laughs> they don't offer it online. So yeah, it, it kind of reminds be a great me of innovation thing. if they did <laughs> <laughs> where like, you know, everyone thinks they have an edge you know, like deep stack. Hold them is kind of like this where everyone's like, Oh yeah, I have an edge with deeper stacks. They're like nine people at the table. all think they have an edge with deeper stacks. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> And it, but I'm trying to remember what game they kept picking because it did turn out that like they were playing almost the same game all the time. So that was sort of what was happening. Like it seemed like it's like everybody's picking the most obscure game, but they're all picking it. Right. So like, what's your, <laughs> your edge? <laughs> but it would be an interesting thing to consider. Would I just pick 08 every time, or would I, um, uh, you know, or I mean, but but I think I think you would have to really con- you'd really have to consider both like. What you know, what games you know the most, but and and also be paying attention to what mistakes the other players are making in what games, um, and and make decisions you know based exploitatively on that. I can imagine there might also be times like if you had a big stack at a point where ICM were particularly important, you might want to choose a you know a higher variance game um, rather than give people that opportunity to just like consistently collect half the pot and and stay in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean that's a that's that's a huge thing that I'm looking at right now with um, with limit ICM and I can really I can only run ICM Sims and limit hold'em uh, right now uh, because Munker does the ICM doesn't work for Omaha um, and uh, and that's something inter- yeah that's something interesting I'm really seeing is that it appears that ICM only really becomes a huge factor when your stack is actually going to be at risk in the hand. Um, and so if you, if you are super deep stacked in limit, you have almost no ICM pressure, whereas if you're short stacked, you have tremendous ICM pressure. Um, and so if you had like, if, so if you were like a big stack and you had a lot of like other, so like it might, like I'd probably go for a no limit type game if like I was, let's say I had 80 big blinds and then there were a lot of like 30 to 40 big blind stacks and maybe a couple super short stacks. Uh, that would be a really interesting time to pick a big bet game, I think. I wanted to ask you about your film festival as well, but I don't want to cut things off. Was there more poker stuff that you all wanted to talk about? What about you, Carlos? No, no, no. I'm just um, trying to wrap my head around all this misgame stuff. <laughs> I only play um, No Limit, and I only play tournaments for the most part. But I do think... Um, um, I I learned something from your your conversation on the mixed game, so thank you for that. What, what, can you say what? I'm I'm curious. Yeah, so like the whole idea about playing to your strengths and like like the the thing you mentioned about 
um, understanding the structure when it comes to tournaments. Because if I understand correctly, I would I would venture to say most of the mixed games players that I know or have heard about are primarily in um, cash games. So for you to be a mixed game specialist, but also a mixed game tournament specialist, um, puts you in the right category, uh, I would assume. And the idea of, um, you know, that part of your game, um, focusing on the structure of the tournament and knowing like, you know, when to pick which, well, that's dealer's choice, but knowing like which game is coming up next and how that influences your strategy for the current game. Like all that stuff was fascinating to me. Yeah, I was joking with Andrew over over message the other day that uh, uh, I was going to try to encourage you to, to play some <laughs> mixed game tournaments um, because because uh, you know I love I love listening to you talking about um, game selection and you know really choosing the soft games uh, as much as you can, which I think is a really smart strategy. But I wanted to encourage you to think about mixed games in that category as being like super soft, especially at like not the nosebleed level. Um, because, like, I was joking, like, you know, yeah, Ignition's soft and all, but are they, don't even know the rules soft? <laughs> like, they're, um. playing, they're playing high when it's, a, when it's a low ball game. It's, like, soft. Like, yeah. that, like that's the amazing thing. Like, like, this is why I love Scoop so much, and I'll, and I'll play everything, and I always, and I don't late reg. Um, this is really important because so many people will just like take a flyer, even up to like a hundred dollar buy-ins, like say during a scoop or something like that. Um, no limit players or people who don't really, and they don't bother to even learn the rules of the games. And so in the early levels, you will see people who just make, or or they don't notice when the game changes, for example. <laughs> and um, and so you just have people piling in money with like zero equity, <laughs> and they'll That's just insane. and they'll and they'll cap every street. With you know a full house in Raz <laughs> or um, in Triple Draw, you know um, it's amazing. Like it's just it's just free money. I will say that you've encouraged me to watch some of your Twitch streams to see this in action, <laughs> but I'm not going to be the guy that jumps in and plays because if I do, there's a very high chance I'll be one of those guys who don't who doesn't know the rules. And I don't want to. Well, I mean, I there's, a, there's an easy answer to that, which is just you know, learn the rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That takes I mean, more. literally, just taking some, like, just taking some time to learn, just learn the <laughs> rules, like, be, be, like because of like you know, for for people who really understand tournaments, who understand strategy, who understand you know, who understand like betting principles and checking principles and like you know where they should be doing what and stuff like that. Like, you'll be amazed at how extensive your tournament knowledge is, and if you just learn the rules of the game, even that can be yeah. a tremendous edge well let me i do have a strategy that i want to run by you because on ignition they used to have it set up in a way where you would accidentally register um for a non-holdem tournament and i've done that multiple times (laughs) and so i was playing i think this was um 08 um plo 08 and um I had no idea how to play it. I didn't know anything about the game. And so I quickly like asked some friends and what they told me to do was fold everything unless you get a suited wheel ace and then just pot it every time. 
I did uh, that, and I won. I think I won three of the four tournaments I played, and that's literally <laughs> all I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was gonna say. I think. I, I mean, I think you already had your answer that that was a good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, oh, I love Await so much. It's my favorite game. Um, and probably Pot Limit is my favorite variation of it. I really love No Limit too, but and I love Limit too. But like, I I would probably rank them Pot Limit, No Limit, and Limit. Um, and uh, yeah, like Aces are just Aces. I think are more important in 08 than in any other game. And obviously, they're very important in Hold'em, and obviously, they're very important in PLO. But like, when you think about ranges in 08, I mean, I'll put it this way. So one of the things that I discovered in my studies recently. Um, I believe this is correct. It's either the top 200 hands or the top 5% of hands. There is not a single hand, inter- equity-wise, that doesn't have an ace in it. King, wow. Even king-king, deuce-three, double-suited is not anywhere near the top of range in 08. So this is extremely different from No Limit Hold'em, right? Where like it's yeah. not where like you, there's lots of very playable hands when you don't have an ace. This doesn't mean that you never play uh, the, that you never play any hands without an ace. Um, in fact, um, it's I'd say my my V pip in 08 tournaments is probably on average 40 percent, and I have won tournaments where my V pip was 80 percent. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just. I, but I just really know how to exploit other players, and and obviously when I'm playing eighty percent of hands, it's because they're never re-raising me, right? Um, if they're if I'm getting re- like, it depends on how like players are responding to these strategies. Um, you can play a lot of hands in a way, but you need to. But but for a beginner, I like that strategy a lot because you know until you really learn the nuances of the game, that's like you just go with the best hands and you push them. You know, like that's a really I think that's a really good strategy. I mean, I would also rec- I also think that's a good strategy for beginners and no one would hold them though. To, to be quite honest, but um, but but also the other thing that is true of 08 is that um, clumping card removal uh, and dead cards um, just matter so much, so much more. Um, I ran the numbers and now I'm forgetting what it was, but I think basically like if you're on the button at an eight at an eight-handed table uh, in No Limit Hold'em versus 08. Um, the blinds are about four times more likely to have an ace in their hand in 08 than they are in No Limit Hold'em. This is just a massive difference that, that really has to affect your button strategy. Right. You, you and mean like if, all if it's that. folded you on the button, right? If it's folded to you on the button, right. Because, because again, as I was saying, most of the best hands have an ace in it. So when it's folded around to you, the likelihood of other people folding an ace is just dramatically lower than in No Limit Hold'em. Um, and that means that there's going to be more ace, and especially with four cards, there's also means more cards are removed <laughs> from the deck, right? right? Um, so it's just astronomically more likely that people have a strong hand in the blinds at an eight-handed uh, 08 table than at a no limit holding. This goes down, like obviously for six max and stuff like that, which is why six, which is why I think a lot of what we see now is six max um, 08, um, because it makes mm-hmm. it a little bit more interesting, like in that way. Um, but uh, but these are like. There are just some major, major differences, and when you start to understand them, um, it becomes a, a really massive edge. So now that reminded me of two other things I wanted to ask you. Um, <laughs> sure. The first, in, in terms of uh, you know, just know the rules, I think I have always known the rules. 
Um, but I have sometimes lost track of which game I was playing. So on occasions, uh, yeah, that's important. Yeah, but like, are, are there? Um, I mean, is it just like pay attention, idiot? Like, is is there anything that you do? Do you have a, some routine of like when you look at your cards, you you kind of double check the the game that you're currently playing? I mean, the stud games is really where this is the absolutely absolutely. Um, if I look at a hand and I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's a good hand, and you know, like I think I'm playing Raz, I'll like double check to make sure we haven't switched to said and um and on the poker sites and and live there's always a placard or whatever on the table that tells you what game it is so yeah um i just try to make it a practice to uh double check before i make a bet to that uh um i'm playing the right game <laughs> but it i mean it does happen to everyone at some point i think um including me some you know sometimes i get distracted or sometimes you know like mistakes happen um, and uh, you 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 can make that you can make that mistake, but obviously making that mistake less than others is is important. Yeah, I've tried to build those sorts of practices for like no limit. I'll um, it, it's happened. You know, I've forgotten my cards, which again, you know, has happened to uh, other people, I'm sure. But um, it sucks, and you want to try to minimize it. So yeah, I've tried to build in a habit of like I always double check my cards when going to the flop, and then I try not to look at them again after that to avoid giving away information. And then also, you know, if I'm facing a large bet on the river or something, I'll I'll double check my cards before I. Um, before I call that bet, maybe even before I make a large bet on the river, although I think that's a slightly more dangerous, uh, you know, potential to give away information there. But I, I've tried to build in structures. Is is my point? You know, I'm not trying yeah. to just uh, grit my teeth and, and you know rely on um, regret to, to drive me to do it better <laughs> in the future. I, I I like that a lot. Uh, if I ever get to play live again, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then, um, have you read? There was an old book um, from. Uh, Full Tilt put it out. It was like a, a collection of essays on, mm-hmm. on different um, games. Do you, I've got it sitting on my desk right now to prep for my eight game. Okay, well, maybe that answers yeah. my question. I, I was going to ask how well you <laughs> feel like the advice in that book stands up. Um, you know, I I haven't read very much lately this week. I, I said it's on my desk. I didn't say I, I reread it yet. Um, <laughs> but I do think, like, I'm basically trying to reread everything that I have on any of the games before this to, to think about how I want to... But yeah, I think there will be some interesting and helpful information. How much, I'm not really sure, and we'll all see when I go back through it. Um, the book that I actually is my go-to that I always re- that I reread at least twice a year is Dylan Lind's uh, Mastering Mixed Games. Yeah, you know, I still haven't um, gotten around to reading that. I'm, I'm, I'm a big Dylan Lindy fan, and um, I am interested. It's just like not really playing much mixed games myself. It's been hard to motivate myself to actually read it, but I'm sure it's excellent. Yeah, I, well, um, I tend to reread it twice a year before Scoop and W Coop for obvious reasons, um, because, especially because um, those are like now those are the only two times a year that like most of the mixed game tournaments that aren't horse or eight game run or, or 08. Um, there's a lot of 08 these days, which is very exciting, but, which uh, I'm glad I get to play my favorite game a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to play a lot more Raz tournaments and do seven triple draw and stuff like that. Uh, but there's just nothing available um so yeah so i usually do so these the last few years i've been doing that refresher every year before the series um and that's what also why i'm doing my eight game boot camp this year is i i wanted even more motivation more motivation to really do some thorough study um i've been wanting to do this for a while with with eight game and just try to pull just try to pull together and synthesize everything i've learned um, and and then also revisit old texts and like see how and exactly what you said see how they're holding up um, versus what I'm seeing in terms of what's happening in, in game 
now um, and then try to build together the best strategies I can from that. And I think that teaching them in the boot camp is going to also help me retain that information a lot better, um, as well as hopefully help other players um, improve their skills going into the series. Yeah, on that subject, if, if this comes out on Monday, will it be too late for people to uh, to sign up for the boot camp? Not at all. Um, uh, everything is going to be on VOD, so the boot camp will actually be available um, even after it's over. The, the seminars do start Friday, so in terms of live... Um, uh, the first two seminars are Friday and Saturday, but it's a four-week, it's a four-week course um, on Fridays and Saturdays. So if this comes out Monday, people would still have uh, three, you know, six sessions of of live seminars as well as access to the VODs and all of the, the bonus materials like the Sims and ranges and stuff um, that I'm providing. Cool. And how can they, um, if they are interested in that, how can they sign up for it? Uh, probably the best, my website is hopefully going to launch in like two weeks, but it's not up yet. Um, but my Twitter is at Dr. Kamikaze, um, D-R-K-A-M-I-K-A-Z-E. Uh, and the pin post, uh, has a link to the discord with all the info and, and it also has a link to the registration. Um, so yeah, basically my Twitter and discord and, and Twitch. Um, I'm the Poker Mix uh, on Twitch. Um, there's also a link to my Discord and Twitter on there. Uh, those are the best ways to find me. And um, and yeah, and everyone is welcome to join the Discord. I love, as I said, I love talking mis- mixed games. There's space for people to post hand histories and questions on any game in my Discord. And I would love to talk hands and talk with people about it. So please and i and i try to respond to every single one so um uh that's that's there for everybody even if they don't have the fees for the the boot camp awesome um so i mean we're, we're at an hour now you're welcome to go if you need to but i would be curious to hear about the uh your, your work with the film festival as well if you have time yeah sure i've got time um uh yeah uh so when I quit playing, playing professionally, I in like around 2013, I 2014, that was around that time I decided to go back to grad school. Um, I went in. I started. I started gambling treatment around um, 2012, I think. Uh, I had the benefit of being in Canada, and there was a the, with like the public health system, and there was a great gambling treatment that I took part in. And I was still playing for a while, even while I was doing that. Um, but I was starting to play less and less. And, and unsurprisingly, the people in the gambling treatment program were encouraging me to stop playing poker altogether. <laughs> um, uh, and I resisted for a while. But what I did find was that um, part of why I felt really miserable in my life and what I, what I felt was really bad for my health and mental health was that I just didn't feel like I was contributing to society at all. I was spending all of, I mean, I was spending like 80 hours a week playing poker or going to coaching sessions or, you know, um, talking poker with, um, I was part of stables at the time. Um, so that was just, I mean, that was literally my whole life. I did nothing else. I hardly saw anybody. And when I, and at that point I was approaching 40 and I was just like, what am I doing with my life? Is this, you know, real talk? Is this how I want to live the rest of my life? And I was like, no. <laughs> I really don't. Um, 
And I and I realized that I had sort of like lost track of all my passions in life. One of the major one is is filmmaking, and um, and arts. And so I just for various reasons, um, including just wanting to, because because in that time since I had. I, I, I did my BA in film school and, and finished, but that was that finished in 1996 when I went into my PhD and I wasn't, I was only doing theory, I wasn't doing um, film production anymore, and I had been trained originally on film, film like film stock, and of course in that time the entire digital revolution had happened and nobody was shooting on film anymore and kind of like with solvers like everything had changed, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Uh, and so for, for for that and other reasons and wanting to you know reconnect with my passion for filmmaking i decided to go back and do an mfa uh, in film production which i started in 2013 and that was just really fantastic and so i started making films again and what i had also noticed was that during that time that film festivals had really changed when i was younger queer film festivals had been a, a really important part of my life both as a filmmaker but also just as a queer person looking for community like basically back in the day we had bars and we had film festivals those were the only ways to like find queer community and so film festivals were really important to me but what i i didn't like what i had what i saw was happening in uh the biggest uh, lgbt film festivals at all um and so i wound up at, after at the end of my mfa i wound up getting uh this super sweet fellowship it was a one-year fellowship where i got um paid a full salary the first the first time i was i had ever gotten a salary in my life actually um the first time i wasn't completely destitute and i was being paid um a, a year's salary to just work on my films um it was a it was a it was a fellowship at a law school here in toronto and they um they gave a grant to me and another documentary filmmaker to do a, a sort of like documentary and law um fellowship where we got to work on our our projects develop and, and, and start shooting and it came, it came also with a stipend and so that was when I started production on my next feature film which still isn't done unfortunately because of some health problems and then COVID but I'm hoping to finish in the next year and also during that period of time since I had like almost immediately I realized once I finally had the freedom to not have to work and not have to stress about rent I realized like I had to I had to figure out a way to make this my life that um especially as an autistic person i don't know if you know this like eight like eight, 70 to 80 percent of autistic people are unemployed there's just tremendous unemployment it's it's extremely difficult to find and maintain work in traditional um in traditional workplaces for autistic people and that was my experience like you know my entire life everyone always said to me but you're so smart you've got a phd you, like you have so many skills like come on you could find a job if you wanted to and it's like no, I actually can't. And and I didn't actually and I was undiagnosed, so I didn't actually understand why I couldn't, but I knew that I couldn't. Like I knew this was not working for me. And then I got this fellowship and I was like, yes, I need to like make my art and be be in control of my time like all the time. I need to I need to be living where my passions at. I can't be trying to work soul-sucking jobs. Like I just can't do it. And um so that was that was a really amazing thing and I used that time not only to uh, do a tremendous amount of work on my film and get all that going but I also used that time uh, and the the little money I had to start the nonprofit that I run today which is the Toronto Career Film Festival and um, 
I basically like this is how I approach everything that I do, including like what I'm doing with the boot camp, and you, you probably see the similarities in what we just talked about. Um, like I just believe if there's something that's missing in the world that I really want, probably other people want it too. Um, and this is actually something that my one of my old psychoanalysis professors said back in the day. Like, you know, people always talk about psychoanalysis as being really individualistic, and he would say like. You know, it's only individualistic if you think you're so different from everybody else. <laughs> so I operate from the principle that if I'm really missing something, if I'm really craving something, if I'm really wanting something, probably other people are too. So I tested it. I had literally $300 to my name. I booked a space for three nights. Um, and this was in large part because I had made a, a feature film that was rejected from the more mainstream, larger LGBT festival in Toronto. It was a film about Toronto queer activists, and they rejected it. And that was to me was the signal that like this, the festival circuit had just changed in a really bad way. Um, because I actually used to screen all the time at that festival, and now all of a sudden, when I made a film that was like really applicable to their local audience, they don't want it. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so I was just like fuck this. I booked, I, at first I was just going to do a screening of my film, and I was like, no, I'm not the only one in this position. I'm not the only one being shut out. I'm not the only one not getting what I, I used to love and want from these festivals. And so I booked three nights. I put out a call. I booked um, three nights worth of programming, and it was a huge success. And we had like a two, we wound up with like a $2,000 budget that year um, that all went to the filmmakers, and we now have... We're now an a nonprofit organization with 10 staff members and a $600,000 a year budget. Oh, wow. That's a, a, impressive. Yeah, congratulations on that. And so that's just been really amazing because we're our own bosses. We're collectively run. I don't, I, there's nobody I have to report to. Um, I, it's also it's also really important for me for job security since since I do a lot of like very political work um, that really actually challenges the status quo and threatens capitalists and stuff like that. It was really important to me to have financial security um, that could be easily taken away because a lot of people like me get targeted at their jobs, um, and so I'm I'm now very insulated. I have a you know I have a steady income that meets my needs. It, it, it's a very flexible schedule that gives me time to pursue all of my passions, including poker and filmmaking, and, uh, and provides that stability so that I'm not worrying, worrying about where rent is going to be coming from in all the things that I do. Uh, and not to mention, I really love it, and I love the work that we do. I think we do great work. And um, our festival is up now, if anybody wants to check it out, um, tqff.ca. Um, everything we do is free slash pay what you can, like by donation only. So if you have money and you want to support our work, fantastic. But if, you know, a lot of queer people, especially the queer, the queer audiences that we're targeting are very, very poor. So we make sure to make everything free. Um, and even, um, and even when we do, and when we do workshops, we actually have a call for a workshop right up right now for, um, uh, for people interested in animation, um, we have a six-month workshop intensive that we're offering that we'll, we will pay filmmakers $6,000 to participate in, as well as provide them access to um, editing and post-production tools and mentors that will be mentors teaching them and stuff like that. Uh, so we actually pay people to participate in our courses um, to make it feasible, for, you know, because when you're really poor, like, 
you don't have a lot of money and maybe you have to be working all the time and stuff like that. So we, we try to make everything not only free, but actually pay people as much as we can um, participate in our offerings. And it's just been really amazing. Yeah, I like I like that piece of it because it it, it shows you you're paying for that blessing you had with the um, fellowship. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, yeah, it's I no. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I, I was just gonna say that it's, it's a thing that I've often said, and I've not been as good following through as I was earlier in my career. But like that, I wanted you know poker to be a means of facilitating my doing other things that were important to me, which, you know, I also have started a nonprofit, um, although I've been you know, barely involved with it at all anymore. Um, but I, mean, I, I certainly can relate to that feeling of like wanting to use the, the, I mean, being generally interested in poker, not like only using it as a means to an end, but like wanting to take advantage of that financial freedom to do something else with it. Yeah, I, I, you know, if we're, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? You know, like, I can't live my life just trying to make money. That's empty and soulless. And especially in the state of the world today, like, cruel. <laughs> you know, like, my, my, pri- like, and that's why, you know, I, like, poker is very important to me, but my top priority is doing everything I can to build mutual aid and care networks because that's what I think that we all need in in the in this moment that we're in, which I think is only going to deteriorate for the next while um, and maybe for the rest of my life. Um, and there's no solutions coming from capitalism, only death. And I think to survive this and to thrive and to have meaningful lives like people are the most important thing and supporting people are the most important thing and building networks of mutual aid and care um is how we is how we live through this yeah i know there's some people in in poker you know like the whole kind of effective altruism thing where i I think there is a theory that's kind of like well if if you can just make a bunch of money and then donate that money um that is kind of arguably the most effective thing you can do and i mean I, i try to do some of that also and I feel like that could even be true for some people, but I think in, in a lot of cases, and myself included, it's not, it doesn't really feel that fulfilling. Like, e- even, no. even if you, and I imagine you may not buy this, but even if you do accept the premise of like, this is in theory the most effective thing that, that you could do to help people, I think it's, it's very difficult to like follow through on that because you're not seeing or, or feeling the effects of that. It's all very abstract. You're just sort of hoping like, oh, you know, I sent a few thousand dollars over here and like I sort of trust that those people are doing good things with it, but I'm not feeling any of that. Yeah, I actually think that's a terrible ideal and terrible practice and it doesn't do what people are thinking in the slightest. <laughs> I actually completely disagree with that philosophy. That um, and, and I think it's telling that it mostly comes from people who have never experienced poverty and never experienced really any struggles in their life at all, um, usually. Um, and that's, that's one thing I really appreciate about your show here and about Carlos's perspectives in particular is, like, I've been dirt poor most of my life. I spent most of my life not knowing if I was going to be homeless. Even in the last five years, I thought that I was going to be homeless. Um, I was, five years ago, I was making... $15,000 a year um, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Um, uh, my communities, myself, my experiences have 
Like, that's one thing that I, like, I'm not doing that badly now, and I'm very grateful for that, but I hold tight on those experiences, and I <laughs> do not forget them, and I operate from that perspective always. Like, what did I need when I was in that moment? What, if I were in that moment now, what would I need? What would help people? What is whatever? And money to organization, like, the, so there's a number of problems with this theory. First of all, that, that um, first of all, that you will be donating money to the right place, and that second of all, those places actually are beneficial to communities. And the standards by which people in poker that I see trying to decide like what, a, what, 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 where their money is going to be spent best. And this is a problem with rich people in general who go on this, um, go on this tact is that they want to donate their money where their values are and where their values are, aren't usually where, what people, what people actually need. And it's also really con like, I mean, philanthropy is an entire, I, I mean, this is basically a philanthropic model and a philanthropic model is, I think, primarily designed to make rich people feel good about themselves. And also more so it's just actually designed to give them tax breaks. And, and the fact that the fact that you see billionaires, I mean, look at any, I mean, just pick one, like it doesn't matter. They're all the same, you know, Bill Gates, starts his own foundation. Bezos starts his own foundation. These are just money laundering, like, opportunities. Uh, who, who that, that, that poker player who's supposed to be becoming, like, the head of giving for Elon Musk or whatever. I mean, these people are psychopaths. They are monsters. They, have, they got that rich, and they continue to get that rich by maiming and killing people. They, they, by stealing everything in the world, by extracting labor and resources to the death. These are not good people. The best thing that they could do would be to stop, but they won't stop, and they cover up their crimes against humanity, literal crimes against humanity, by, through philanthropy, um, as to whitewash their image, as well as to, um, as well as to avoid paying taxes, which would actually benefit the people, <laughs> and provide infrastructure and services that would actually do good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm against all of it. I think that if you, it's not that I don't think money should be donated, but I think you need to have connections to communities, and I think you need to actually know what is really needed, and what, um, and, and be tied in, and actually be listening to and letting the people who are most affected by situations determine where the money should go, and that's just never what happens. I mean, all the, like, any billionaire could have solved the Flint water crisis by now. They choose not to. Any billionaire could solve hunger. They choose not to. There's all sorts of social problems that we have that they could solve if they actually wanted to solve them, but they don't want to solve them. They want to pretend to look like they're solving them. They want to pretend to look like they're contributing to image, but what they want is power and they want to conserve them and they want to keep their money and they want to hoard all those resources and I'm not here for any of that. The alarm going off in the background while you were saying that felt very... Uh, oh, funny. I'm sorry. No, 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 it was, it was very uh, uh, atmospheric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I mean, we are, I mean, I do really do think we are in a, in a, you know, between war and famine and plague, I do think we are in a moment of planetary crisis and it's no, it's no time to be fucking around. And, um, and, I, and I live that every day in my life. Um, that's what's important to me. And I, you know, I love poker as a game too, and I'm I'm here for it. Um, but um, I, but I can't. I, I realize that my, you know, I have a lot of problems with anxiety and stuff like that. And I've realized that actually the best thing for my anxiety is to actually face what's really happening in the world. And on a small level, 
and because I think that's the only way we can have an, app, an impact, uh, most of us actually, is on a small level, with, with directly in the communities around us. What can I do to better people's lives today? Um, and, and what can I do to support the people in my life and my communities today and in the near future as well as long term? And I have both short and long, medium and long term plans for that. And um, if that's not the focus of my life first, before poker and before everything else, um, uh, I'm not happy and I'm not feeling like I'm living a meaningful life. Yeah, that, that I definitely agree with. And um, it's been my experience as well in that I've used poker to kind of like free me up to do some of those things that impact people uh, more directly. Uh, I recently had the experience of um, my grandmother being in the hospital and, and you know, not being in, you know, uh, pretty good shape there. We didn't know what was going to happen, but, you know, she had to spend like a month in the ICU and I was able to like just go and just sit with her for like days on end in the ICU um, because of poker. But it yeah. wasn't like, you know, I couldn't donate. <laughs> I couldn't donate help in that situation. So, like, just being able to be there for people. Like, like to me, um, what I hear you saying is, like, that's more important than, like, financial donations. And, I, and I've definitely yeah. experienced that. And I'm, I'm sure that you were, like, I'm sure there was nothing more important to you than being able to be there in that moment. Yeah. Because, I, I yeah, like, like it's, money doesn't solve it. Like, it's, it's actually sitting in that chair. Yeah. It was the best time and the worst time of my life all at I once. mean, I'm, I'm sure, but like, you know, so much better to be able to do that than not be able to be there because you're working 80 hours a week at some shit corporate job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that I 100% agree with. And um, I know you mentioned that it was um, important for you um, and your autism to like be able to control your own destiny and not, you know, work for some corporation. Um, I think that's just good advice for everybody. <laughs> so everybody Me can too. just like, you know, take your take your your advice and just like try to follow your passion and do that for a living. And I think that's just good for everybody's uh, mental health. It's definitely been for me, been the case for me. I mean, the, the, social, the social contract has been has been abandoned a long time ago and continuing to work for these corporations continuing to work most jobs i mean it's just not only literally destroying the planet but i think is against most people's interests um the fact of the matter is is that we don't need these rich people we don't need these corporations we don't need these jobs what we need to do is band together and figure out new ways of living sustainable ways of living um that don't involve um our exploitation and our oppression and and I think that there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think actually that poker players, most poker players are onto something, but I think they get, they still get too sucked into the capitalist mindset thinking, well, you know, I'm a poker player and so that's my business now and I just want to like exploit and extract as much as possible. Like not really paying attention to the fact that probably most of them are drawn to poker because they want that freedom. They want, they want to be able to control their lives and they want to build good lives for themselves. Um, but when you focus only on money, you get lost in that and you lose sight of that, that big picture. Yeah. And then you lose the money yeah, exactly. and, now you, and now you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my biggest thing is like, you know, I'm blessed to have this freedom that the money provides. Don't fuck it up. 
Ja. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to talk about today? Uh, send people? Uh, no, I don't think I. I just want to plug my eight game boot camp again. I think it's going to for anybody interested in mixed games. It's I, and it is going to be designed for people who have little to no experience with them. We're going to be covering everything from the ground up. Um, so it's going to be um, eight games, eight session, eight four four hour plus sessions of live coaching, uh, plus VODs, plus ranges and powerpoints and all the information that I have. I'm also going to do a live play and explain, private stream, no delay. Um, I think for anybody interested in getting into mixed games, this is, you know, the place, I think it's the only place to be. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, uh, you know, if, if I'm wrong, I'd love to hear about it. I, I'll go and buy the other content. Um, but, um, yeah, I've, I've just loved to work with anybody who's interested in mixed games and, and um, share what I know and hopefully help see you succeed. Well, thanks for sharing so much of your time with us. Thanks for having me. It's really, really exciting. And I mean it. I, I'm happy to, to, to get tapped in for uh, any Mixed Games questions. Oh, yeah, that's a good... <laughs> I, will, I, will send, I will send them your way. Trust me. <laughs> no, that, that's a good prompt for, uh, for people listening to uh, you know, send, send us some, some Mixed Games stuff. And you can get not just uh, my and Carlos's speculation, but uh, maybe some of Cammy's actual knowledge as well. All right, thank you again, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Do I need some kind of pill? Or the devotion of a car? The light of the fair passage of a bill? And who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't.